the economic panic behind the scandal rocking Australia and the fight to re-nationalise Where Is Australia? Coming up on today's show. Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 26th of August 2022. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party leader, uh, Craig Isherwood. Welcome, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Elisa. And on today's show, we're going to be discussing uh, the fact that Prime Minister Morrison had one job to keep Australia on the neoliberal track. Uh, and then we'll talk about uh, the overwhelming support in the United Kingdom for nationalising crucial public services and the fact that that you know, should be stronger here in Australia and should be being promoted by the government. Um, now, don't forget to like the show, hit the like button if you uh, get something out of it. And in order to circulate it more widely, don't forget to um, share and make a comment and also subscribe so you're notified of new shows. Now, before we get into the first topic of the day, just a couple of reminders. Um, uh, bearing on last week's show and we asked people to um, help us build for a public postal bank forum that we'll be holding, uh, the local po licensed post office group is going to be hosting a forum on the necessity uh, to turn Australia Post into a public postal bank and that'll be held in the Parliament building in Canberra on the 7th of September. So last week we talked about how people should be contacting their Member of Parliament and demanding they send someone along, if not go themselves, to that forum. Uh, we will have uh, the former Deputy um, Foreign Minister of New Zealand, Matt Robson, there speaking about Kiwi Bank and their experience. Uh, and also, don't forget to let us know if you come across a bank in your area or anywhere uh, that doesn't accept cash, uh, let us know because uh, the regionals, Dale Webster, is um, calling out APRA on their uh, listing of so-called bank branches. And, you know, they, they're overestimating how many there are. And basically, if your bank won't take cash or give you change, they are not a bank branch. Mm. Uh, and on that point, actually, I just want to play before we get into the rest of the show, a quick clip, which again highlights, and this is, you know, happening a lot now, um, the kind of bank closures people are facing. This is about Blackwater in Queensland. It's a familiar story, bank branches in towns, suburbs and cities closing their doors or cutting hours. In the central Queensland town of Blackwater, one has reduced its operating time to three hours, one day a week. Blackwater, a town with 4,000 people and two banks. NAB says it's here to help, a new sign in the window, informing customers of new hours, just three on a Tuesday morning. Unfortunately, it's not a new story right across regional Queensland and certainly in the central Highlands. NAB says the change is temporary. We know that the recent unplanned closures have been frustrating. The decision to temporarily close a branch even for a few hours or a day is not made lightly. Across Australia, 
bank branch closures have been growing. More than 500 since 2020, regional areas hit hardest. It is a shame to see all these things closing down. You can't even go to ATMs in some towns. More than 55 bank branches have closed in Queensland since 2021. The finance sector union says more will come over the next year. We're very concerned about the proposal for ANZ to buy the banking arm of Suncorp. 25 suburbs, towns and cities in Queensland have both an ANZ and a Suncorp branch including Chermside, Mitchelton, Indrapilly and Carindale, as well as Helensvale and Rabina on the Gold Coast. Regional areas like Mount Isa, Mackay and Caloundra also have branches. We're starting to get concerned about the longevity of the second tier banking, which we really need. In a changing industry, Georgia Terry, 7 News. Yeah, so, you know, just one more example. There's so many towns. We're hearing stories from all over the place. So do send us an email at the email on the screen or give us a call and let us know um, your experience, particularly if there's a bank that won't take cash. Yeah. Um, so right into the first topic, um, the economic panic behind the scandal rocking Australia. So we're talking again uh, about what we discussed at length on last week's show, which if you didn't see it, make sure you have a look at the first section on um, Morrison's multiple ministry malarkey, as one of our um, researchers here calls it. Yeah. Um, and basically, we wanted to make the point that his job the overwhelming job that he had when he came in as Prime Minister, which remember um, he took over from Turnbull um, in August 2018 and then you had the election the following year in May 2019. But what we're going to give a bit of a sense from is during that period the immense economic breakdown that was taking place and how the Prime Minister's job, his one job, was to protect the banks by, protect, by preventing an economic revolution, a revolution in policy, which was um, very, very possible at that point. But we'll come back to that. For the moment, I want to make the point that um, because obviously he started taking on these ministries in, I guess it was 2020, yeah. um, but there's been a number of commentators saying it started much earlier. The build-up uh, began in 2018, and I refer to an article by former Queensland Integrity Commissioner David Solomon. This was published by Pearls and Irritations on the 24th of August. He wrote a very interesting article saying that when the Morrison government published its list of government ministers dated the 28th of August 2018, it contained a footnote stating that ministers, quote, may also be sworn to administer other portfolios in which they are not listed. And he cited comments by the Solicitor General indicating that this was not a usual and normal thing to have in there. Um, now, of course, this meant that Morrison was making these preparations well ahead of the COVID-19 crisis, which was supposed to have justified what he did, according to him and others. Um, it also fits with the article that I referenced last week, written by Simon Benson, Network of Influence, uh, in which Benson maps out how Morrison completely had had plans to completely overhaul um, the leaders of government departments, the entire public service, intelligence, economic policy, and bring in a, all of his close knit network of people. And they even showed in that article these um, diagrams of all the different circles of influence that he had. Um, so this was the picture 
taking shape in 2018. A lot of interesting things here, Elisa, because the Albanese government has announced that they're going to have an inquiry into this. But, you know, one has to ask the question, how deep is this going to go? Because, look, Australia's not a republic. We are a self-governing colony of the British Empire. Oh, we're not an empire. We're part of the, what do you mean? We're part of the Commonwealth. Well, that's what it got changed to when the idea of empire became unfashionable. But we have, and we've published this in the last uh, uh, Australian Alert Service, the detailed dictatorial powers of the Queen and her Governor-General. And what you find is, and, and, and it's good that Albanese has also appointed a minister. Mm. Um, uh, appoint Matt, Matt, he's appointed Mass, Matt Thistlewaite as Assistant Minister, minister for the Republic. So hopefully we can move to becoming a republic. I mean, the Citizens' Party is a republican party. We believe that we have to become a republic in order to become you know, independent in foreign, foreign policy matters, independent in financial matters and mm -hmm. so forth. There's a whole rationale for that. And we, go, we have detailed this in our, what we call our republican pamphlet. People can you know, uh, you know, um, call up for a copy of uh, where we go to into the detailed history of how you know, this idea of responsible government was foisted upon us as a way of stopping us becoming a republic back in the 1870s. But I found it fascinating that Gareth Evans uh, commented in uh, a publication in 1976, Gareth Evans being the, uh, a future government, uh, attorney general, uh, he made a comment in 1975 that in keeping in the way that the Australian Constitution is written, he says, indeed, if the literal language of the Constitution were to believe, to be believed, the Governor-General had all the status and the power of the Ottoman Sultan. <laughs> he could, for example, dismiss at will both parliaments and ministers, refuse to appoint any ministers at all, allow the Parliament to meet but one day a year and not spend any money when it did, and take over the personal control as Commander-in-Chief of the Army, Navy and Air Force. I mean, that's the power of the Governor-General and he is acting on the direction of the Queen. Yeah, he is, we don't vote for that guy. We don't vote for This guy's <laughs> not voted in. He's, you know, he's put in there as, the, uh, as, as the, the power of the Queen. Yeah. And this is what we're dealing with here. Yep. Now, is that going to come out in this inquiry with no. Albanese? I don't no. think so because this is so sensitive. That, you know, what has yeah. been the role of the Governor-General here? Who advised Morrison to do this? And unfortunately, we're not going to see a lot of these, um, uh, you know, uh, reasons come out. Yeah, and the other thing we won't see is what we're about to go through now, through now which is the motivation, not the personal motivation of Morrison, but of that body mm. behind the Prime Minister of Australia, the real power structure, um, to control events through this period because if you think back um, to the economic backdrop and remember February 2018 so we're talking about 2018 as being you know when Morrison started you know these preparations these this power grab and in 2018 in February that year was when the bail-in bill which most of our viewers will be familiar with passed this was part of a preparation for a new financial crisis to grab deposits and uh, other investments that people have in the bank in order to bail out a collapsing bank. But of course, the broader backdrop, uh, let's just, and you can go obviously a lot earlier because we were warning of a financial crisis a lot earlier than 2008. From, but from the 2008 crash, already by 2009, the admission was quite open that 
the problem that led to the 2008 financial crash had not been solved because the G20 set up the Financial Stability Board, which was housed at the Bank for International Settlements. And the purpose of that board was to plan the next bail-ins, well, bail-ins in addition to bailouts for the next bank rescue when the next crash happened. So they were already preparing that. By 2013, you had the first use of bail-in in Cyprus. We started exposing that, saying it's coming to Australia. We started fighting for Glass-Steagall, which would be the, me, the alternative to prevent a banking crash in the first place by stopping banks from gambling, which was the source of the problem. Yeah, it separated out the necessary banking functions you have to have in the community, the retail banks, from these uh, wholesale and merchant banking operations that were only interested in speculation and creating large volumes of money in the speculative derivatives markets and so forth. Merchant banking has no place in an economy or shouldn't be empowered to have any place in the economy ahead of the necessary retail banking system. And that's what Glass-Steagall does. It says we've got to have a, a sound retail banking system, commercial banking system, that is protected and guaranteed, mm. and the rest of the banking system can go and do what it likes, but it's not going to get access to people's deposits. That's right. Now, in 2014, um, Mark Carney, who's the head of, who was the, then the head of the Financial Stability Board, um, made this urgent push to get bail-in passed at the Brisbane G20 Summit. And I can't go into the detail now, but you can um, find out more on our website where we, the Citizens Party, played a crucial role in blocking that global regime from coming to pass. And it didn't happen at the Brisbane G20. They actually backed off on that. Um, but this was what was happening through that period. Through Then you come fast forward to 2017, you had the push for the Royal Commission. Remember how intense that period was? People warning what the banks, the criminal activities the banks were doing and the impact that they could have. The Royal Commission was announced at the end of 2017, commenced in 2018. Despite Morrison's objections and blocking it every single way along that period. Which was part of his job, protect the banks mm -hmm. by preventing an economic uh, revolution, as I said earlier. Um, so then February 2018, the bail-in bill passed. Uh, and I just wanted to make this one note in, of the global implications of this, actually, not just for Australia. You know, the 2nd of May 2018 London Times article said that the Australian Royal Commission had, quote, sent shockwaves as far as Britain it warned that banks were losing, quote, the dominant hold they used to, have, used to have over politicians and that the Royal Commission in Australia may go further than any other nations by, quote, demanding a breakup of the country's big banks, which was only our campaign. No one else was pushing that. And they said this would be a precedent that could capture the imagination of banking critics the world over. And, of course, now we have our public postal bank campaign, Elisa, which is exactly what the big banks fear. The only opposition to this in mm. the country mm. is going to be from the big mm. banks because it represents this process of breaking up their power. Exactly. Putting the power back into the hands of an elected government through a publicly owned bank that can then issue credit mm. into sectors that the banks don't want to, the, the big four banks don't want to invest in. Yeah, so were the, pow the financial powers that be worried about this? Was oh. it really a threat? Well, evidently, yes, because look what Morrison did with his power grab. Now, I just want to go through some of the, because looking at that year, 2018, to get a bit of a, um, more of a visual picture of it, I just want to show some of the headlines of the Australian Alert Service 
from 2018 and you can see they're talking about the potential political upheaval and the potential for economic shock and change as we go through this of a regime change for Wall Street and the City of London. The fight we led against bail-in, the fight for Glass-Steagall, Bob Catter putting up the bill, um, the shockwaves that were going through the financial system to um, change the system, put people before markets. Of course, you had various financial crises happening all through this period, which you know there's no, we can't possibly recount them all. Enormous turmoil, um, political instability, the government um, changes in government that were constant through this period, a whole um, a housing uh, period, a housing. Uh, blow up potential and so forth that was also going on at that time and the people demanding solutions. So that just gives a bit of a snapshot and that's not obviously all of them. That might be about half of the alert services we put out in that period of time. But to give you another view on um, this Morrison power grab, I want to reference back to something we reported at the time as well. Uh, in 2016 in the City of London, which is another reflection of the same angst of the banking fraternity to try to hold on to their power. So in 2016, the City of London applied for a permanent traffic regulation order to protect what's known as the square mile, which is literally a square mile right in the City of London where all the banks are. And this order would allow police to preemptively shut that whole area down, closing roads and footpaths in a terrorist attack or a financial breakdown. And at that time, um, in January 2016, City of London Financial Insider Tim Price said that financial martial law was on the cards during the 2008 crash. So they were thinking back to that and what might be coming. He said, in that kind of financial instability, you're talking troops on the streets. How do you maintain law and order if people have suddenly run out of money and through no fault of their own? And a little later in May 2018, reflecting back on that period in the 2008 crash, British, the then British Chancellor in 2008, Alistair Darling, said that the UK had come within hours of, quote, complete panic and the breakdown of law and order at the point when the Royal Bank of Scotland failed. Um, now, fast forwarding a little past 2018, remember in September 2019, you had the repo crisis, which was the short-term lending market in the US that totally seized up. And although they tried to cover up the real causes of all of that, um, it indicated mm. that we were at the break point for the next meltdown uh, and massive bailouts ensued, new forms of bailouts, which again we've documented extensively. And then the early 2020, as COVID hit, became a key point. The economy was in trouble. The banks were in trouble. Our intervention at that point was clear. Fix the economy because crises, of course, can force nations to break out of the neoliberal straitjacket. Well, the crisis is very you know, specific at the moment because we're starting to get into this process of inflation. You know, the cost of living, the cost of living you know, crisis that's constantly referred to. Well, for the last 12, 15 years, we've had nothing but quantitative easing where you know, the large central banks have been literally printing money i.e. creating, not credit so much for the general economy, but printing money, printing credit, putting it into the banks to use for speculative purposes. We haven't expanded our economy 
it's actually shrunk in many respects. If you take, take, take Australia, for example, we don't produce as much as we used to, yet we have all this money circulating with the Reserve Bank actually pumped a huge amount of money into the economy during the, co the COVID crisis. So they've been pumping money in, and now that is now turning into an inflationary spiral upwards, which is really creating major problems. So this is where this crisis, is, you know, these, these neoliberal policies of supporting mm, the banks is mm -hmm. now coming back to... And they can't control it by continuing to print money because they're only going to put, throw petrol onto the, you know, the inflationary mm, spiral. Mm -hmm. So the, the solution is to actually fix the economy, as you say, which means putting a national banking system into place, a public postal banking system as well, creating credit and putting that into the productive side of the economy. Produce things. You know, produce more uh, food. You know, we need more food on this planet produce real and create real infrastructure, high-speed rails. We don't have any in this country. You look at the councils that are you know, struggling, in the, in the, particularly in the north uh, coast areas with, you know, with all the floods and so forth, the destruction. There's a lot of capital that could be, or credit that could be put into rebuilding, re, uh, re those, rebuilding those entire towns. So there's a lot we can do, but it takes a political shift in mm -hmm. order to do this. Exactly, and that was very much on the cards. Um, and as you're saying, public banking is actually the key because um, when you look at the sweep of history, the greatest threat to the top-down economic control from the City of London and Wall Street has always been public banking. When the American Revolution was successfully won, Treasury Secretary to George Washington Alexander Hamilton said, right, if we want to be truly independent and remain so, we need a bank. And they created a bank. That was seen as a you know, grave threat by the City of London at that time. And they, over the course of history, this happened at other times as well, um, when Bismarck was reunifying uh, Germany and had an advisor, Friedrich List, who loved Hamilton's ideas. And you had the threat of all of Europe being reunified. And so the instigation of World War I, the seeds of that were planted, Bismarck was ousted, and then over the ensuing period, uh, set up of different alliances playing one off against the other in the typical divide and conquer fashion. Um, after World War II, of course, the British Empire, this was what you discussed uh, in we terms change, of, yeah, yeah the um, idea of an empire became unfashionable and so it adopted this role, the City of London uh, and Wall Street at that time, because you had the fashioning of the new transatlantic alliance between the US and the UK. Um, after Roosevelt died, which was unfortunate timing, um, that they created this, what was known as an informal financial empire. Mm. Um, so the purse strings, the control of finance was the key thing. And you couldn't allow countries to have their financial independence and their own control of banking. Um, so our public, you know, everything we showed with those alert services and our interventions, our coming in, um, particularly during 2020 and there, there onward, even though we obviously were discussing it earlier, to have a national bank, to have a public bank, but particularly which captured the imagination of many networks, a postal bank. And with the what happened with Christine Holgate, and you see the effort and the energy that went into ousting her, um, covering up the scandal, the whole nature of that really is another way of highlighting the, the threat that public banking represents and the drive to privatise Australia Post in the first place. And we didn't know back then when, when he did this incredibly terrible thing to Christine Holgate that he was one of the ministers, the shareholder ministers of Australia Post. 
right? He didn't tell anyone that. Yeah. But he actually had the power to do what he did. Yeah. And that's what was so disgusting about this and that it was the secrecy around this is where the detail lies. Yeah. Why the secrecy? Because he told Christine Holgate to stand aside pending an inquiry, which inquiry was going to be overseen by him, yeah. right, who demanded her to leave. Yeah. Um, so have a look at our press release on that, which we put out on Wednesday. And I just wanted to mention one other thing too. Um, we won't talk about it now. We'll discuss it next week once we have more of an insight into it. But just this week, the New Zealand government made the decision to take direct control and ownership of Kiwi Bank um, even though it's government-owned via the post office anyway, but to take direct control of it with uh, what appears to be the intention to expand its banking role. Um, and I want to talk more about that in an international context, about that public um, banking threat, because um, globally there's a huge pushback mm. against um, the, the attempt of the Anglo-American uh, establishment to maintain its hegemony. Which we call a unipolar world. You know, President Putin's came out very strongly in the last week talking about the fact that that's now becoming a myth. I mean, there's no such thing as a unipolar world. We're now in a multipolar world where mm. you don't have the Western alliance, in effect, United States, Britain, Canada and so forth, and Australia, all saying this is how the world has to be run. Yep. You have to abide by our rules. You know, the international, it's not international law, well, the, yeah, it's not written down anywhere. Written, it's just our rules in our, our head. Our rules, you know, the rules of the game, so to speak. And then this is coming to an end. And this is what uh, President mm. Putin has spoken about. That's right. And there's a, mm. there's a growing non-aligned block of countries. Um, they're not all, you know, working together coherently, but they're all resisting this. And so they're working together in various capacities on various issues. There's increasing drive to have trade outside of the US dollar because that's part of that whole old unipolar world. Um, there's an increasing collaboration between these countries to prevent war from breaking out. I mean, the number, there were a lot of nations that actually condemned uh, Nancy Pelosi's trip, as we talked mm. about the other week, to Taiwan in breach of the One China policy, including across Africa, South Africa, Sudan, Eritrea, Zimbabwe, Egypt, Kenya, Kenya and Zambia. The ASEAN, I should say, Association of Southeast Asian Nations put out a foreign minister's statement opposing this and China stated that they had over 170 countries that told them we support you on this issue, you know, respect of the one China policy. Um, so I want to mention, though, two specific examples being South Africa and um, the Solomon Islands, which might not be the two you would normally think of up front, in terms of this pushback, specifically both preventing war and on the economic front. So firstly, on the war front, um, it was very interesting when um, Tony Blinken recently went to Africa on his way back from the Asian region, um, following the trip of the Russian foreign minister to a number of African countries, Sergei Lavrov, and the uh, Americans were very clear that they were trying to counteract Russia trying to win over African countries with development, a bit like China with the Belt and Road. And, you know, they went after all of that. Um, but I want to show a video here of the South African Foreign Minister, Naledi Pandor, uh, who was very polite. However, she went right to the nub of the issue, objecting to the patronising bullying that comes from the West. So, And she's referring to in this clip, um, just so you know, uh, an act that was passed by the US House of Representatives called the Countering Malign Russian Activities in Africa Act. 
Um, the full title of which explains what that's about. The full title says, An Act to Direct the Secretary of State to develop and submit to Congress a strategy and implementation plan outlining United States efforts to counter the malign influence and activities of the Russian Federation and its proxies in Africa and for other purposes. So we'll roll that clip in which she comments on that and she'll also comment on the the strategy that Blinken was promoting, which was the US Sub-Saharan Africa strategy. We have a strategy for you, in other words. So listen to what she says. But in terms of our interaction with some of our partners in Europe and elsewhere, there has been a sense of a patronizing bullying uh, toward you choose this or else. Uh, and uh, the recent uh, legislation passed in the United States of America uh, by the House of Representatives, we found a most unfortunate bill uh, that we'd hoped the media would say more about because uh, when we believe in freedom, as I'm saying, it's freedom for everybody. You can't say because Africa is doing this, you will then be punished by the United States. So uh, that's been a disappointing uh, uh, passage of legislation by one house and we hope the other house will not agree to uh, such offensive legislation. Um, so indeed, uh, it is important that all of us accept our ability to hold different opinions. We are, after all, sovereign nations that are regarded as equal in terms of the United Nations Charter. We may differ in terms of economic uh, power and uh, economic ability to influence uh, development in different parts of the world, but what will make the world work is if we respect each other. When you approach a strategy, you need to think very carefully about the kinds of tactics uh, that you would utilize. So the overall strategic intention might be to uh, advocate for democracy and support its presence on the African continent. However, if your tactic is to approach African countries and say that, listen, you must be democratic, you know, and use our model, it works. Uh, I think it's bound to lead to some failure. So she's pretty clearly saying, you know, don't tell us what to do in the most polite way. Mm. <laughs> but um, I want to go through now earlier um, interventions that South Africa has made on the economic front. And this bears more on what we were discussing about public banking and is very fascinating what's developing there. Because at a local government conference in July, the South African Minister of Cooperative Governments, and apologies for the pronunciation, but Nkosazana Dlamini Zuma, she was married to Jacob Zuma, the Prime Minister for a time, um, she addressed that conference and she was very firm on the necessity for state control of banking. She said, we are learning from this crisis with Russia and Ukraine, the crucial role played by state-owned banks. In other words, we need our financial independence because these kind of sanctions and so forth will crush us otherwise. She said there can be neither sound development nor security without a state-owned and diversified banking and financial sector that is driven first and foremost by the pursuit and advancement of our national interest. We can plan the whole year, she said, but if we are not in charge of finance, our planning will always be stunted because after planning, you have to go and beg and borrow. And remember, this is a government level conference. So she's talking about municipalities, many of which are in her region bankrupt already. And then she said, 
The Chinese have state banks for almost every sector. State banks are doing well and financing the development we see in China. Um, and I'll add to that that there's a, a huge push to turn the post office bank, which has existed since 1875 in South Africa, into a fully-fledged bank. It basically just does basic transactions right now. So they want to have a fully-fledged bank. There's also a push which overlaps the postal push because the post office could be it for a full state, you know, a government bank. And that is supported by President Ramaphosa, um, who said that openly in February 2021, uh, and by um, the previous finance minister who tweeted about how that's the only way to unleash an economic transformation. Now, just quickly on the Solomons to add to that picture, the other example, um, Sogavare, the Prime Minister, reacted to a Four Corners show that ABC put out on the 1st of August called Pacific Capture, How Chinese Money is Buying the Solomons. Um, so he wrote a piece, um, and we're going to run that in the next Australian Alert Service because it's actually a very important pushback. He attacked Western plans to turn the Solomons population against the government's intent to have a relationship with China. Um, the West, he said, is creating division within our country to serve their interest of containing China. And he said, look, our interest is to develop our country. We need infrastructure and development. And if China is able to provide that, then we will engage with China. And he basically said our traditional partners like Australia haven't been much help in that mm. regard. He said it in a nice way. But, um, and he repeated what he said many a time and which our media refused to acknowledge um, because they keep repeat, repeating the same old lies. He said, there will be no military base in the Solomon Islands, not from China, the US, or from any other country. He said, you know, why would we make ourselves a potential target by doing that? We're not that stupid. Yeah, look, this is just illustrating the, the, the breakouts that are happening throughout the world. If there's 170 countries that you know, China cited, that's not an exaggeration. Although people say, oh, no, it's just China pushing a propaganda line. Listen, you have to look at this in the terms of the, the broader historical context of what we've come through since World War II. You've mentioned some of it before. In the United States, you had President Roosevelt that had to deal with the corrupt banking system and he used the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, which, he actually, which actually functioned like a national bank and transformed America in terms of its manufacturing base to support World War II. In Australia, we had John Curtin and Ben Chifley that came to power at the right time, fortunately for us, then took the power of our Commonwealth Bank that was actually acting like a national bank and put the private banks in its place and provided the credit for the economy for us to prosecute the war and incredibly increase our manufacturing base. Now, these are illustrations of sovereignty. And then in, in, in the United Kingdom, you had Clement Attlee that wanted to nationalise the Bank of England and actually he actually moved towards more and more, uh, you know, these nationalist-type policies to develop Britain at that point. So you had this huge... Uh, global push towards real development through national credit, but there was a pushback from that. You had the foundation at that point by the oligarch, by the City of London, by the, the, the royals directly of the establishment of this organisation called the Mont Pelerin Society, which is the root cause of all the neoliberal policies that we have in this country today. Now, we've written about this, we wrote about it in 1997, we've created an enormous amount of literature about the nature of this neoliberal apparatus through its think tanks down here in Australia, the Tasman Institute that's now defunct, the Centre for Independent Studies, the, uh, you know, the IPA and all sorts of these different think tanks that promote this neoliberal agenda. Mm. Now, 
So that's what's hap- that's what's this is neoliberal agenda has now spread out over the world, and they they happily brag about this. But at the same time, you've seen the rise of China from the point of view of the national, mm. uh, the, the, these policies of, of, the, of implicit Glass-Steagall where they protect their credit system, the, the spending of their credit into their economy to expand things like through the state banks as you just mentioned. Right, so what you have now is China's gone out and say you, to other countries that will help you do the same thing. Yeah. So instead of having this dictate, this Western dictatorship you know, top down through a financial mm. oligarchy that you referenced, mm. dictating to countries, you shall only get credit from the, you know, the World Bank or the International Monetary Fund, but you're going to have these conditionalities and you're going to do what we say. You have a, you have a co- cooperative pro- process saying, mm-hmm. we'll provide the credit to build your infrastructure if we work in a partnership. Now, that's creating a multipolar world where mm. there's no longer, you know, through the, through the rise of China, Russia and so forth, you're seeing a... a, a uh, other countries saying, well, we don't want we've had for the last 50 years. Mm. We don't want this austerity model of the World Bank We don't, or, or the IMF. We don't want this. Yep. And this is what you're seeing coming through all mm. the time now in all these different countries. And this South African example is a refreshing because, you know, South Africa is a member of the BRICS country, you know, mm. the Brazil, Russia, Indo, India, China and South uh, Africa. They've been working together now for, mm. it must be close to over, over a decade, on this principle of mutual cooperative development through recognising each country's sovereignty. Mm-hmm. And this is something that Australia has not woken up to mm-hmm. yet and it's what we represent. Yeah, and it's why, you know, Morrison had to have these powers in reserve ready You're to go. to protect this system at all costs, protect. even if it's you know, so-called not legal, not, not illegal. Illegal, yeah. Why isn't it illegal? It's because there's no laws. This is all done through the British system of convention. Yeah. Right, which they can break at any time and have, mm. but if, you know, there's no illegality, and that's what they hide behind. So it's a much bigger fight uh, which we're taking on. Now, we'll move over to developments in the UK to discuss our second topic, the fight to renationalise where is Australia? And it's all related, really, because, again, this comes to the nature of government and the fact that government's role is to provide for the well-being of the population. And in the UK right now, um, and it's very similar to Australia, it's, it's a horrific economic breakdown going on in contrast to the development that we've been talking about. Um, and I just want to read a, a statement from an article, Why Britain's Decline Resembles the Fall of Rome. And you'll see the um, comparison with Australia here. It's, this is just by Martin Fletcher from The Statesman on the 15th of August. Uh, he says, Boris Johnson's zombie government goes through the motions, nothing more. While food and fuel prices soar, the national debt climbs relentlessly and the economy unravels. Reservoirs are drying up. The NHS National Health Service is close to meltdown. Railway and postal workers, dockers, doctors, teachers and others are disrupting or threatening to disrupt essential services through strikes. The police are manifestly failing us. Courts have record backlogs. Ambulances take hours to arrive. Care homes and nurseries are closing en masse for lack of staff. Fruit and vegetables rot in fields for lack of pickers. Travelling anywhere, anyhow, has become a nightmare. It takes months to get anything as simple as a passport or driving test. Uh, is that Britain or Australia? Well, yeah, it's, it's basically all the Western countries. And probably the US might even be worse than that with the, what I just read out, actually. Um, but this is driving a huge push to go back, to dump the neoliberalism, which people like Jeremy Corbyn, who was the head of the Labor Party, fought for the entire you know, three decades plus that he was in power, fought against Thatcherism, thought about the same policies that were implemented under New Labor with Tony Blair and had a chance to change that before he was 
um, you know, bad-mouthed and uh, denounced as an anti-Semitic and driven out of the party. Um, and he and the Labor Party under him supported renationalising all of the, you know, crucial infrastructure mm. from water to the Royal Mail that had been flogged off to fill the pockets of private profiteers. Um, the current UK Labor Party under Keir Starmer has just acknowledged that they're not going to renationalise anything at all, except for some of the trains that are already nationalised or in public ownership. But the support in the population for renationalising, even if temporarily, is huge, as shown in a poll by 38 Degrees, which showed that two thirds of the population, including, as you'll see from some of these graphics, heavily conservative, nearly as many conservative voters as Labor voters, even if they're temporarily nationalised, but it needs to be done to keep people with the lights on, to keep mm. people with their homes heated. Um, in fact, Gordon Brown, who was the Chancellor at the time of the two, sorry, the Prime Minister at the time of the 2008 crisis, uh, said, in my home country of Fife, I'm seeing scenes reminiscent of what I have read of in the hungry 1930s. And he described people, kids going to school, no food in their belly, not enough clothes or shoes. He said, churches tell me they'll be offering their warm halls as heating hubs and doctors are asking how they can use social prescribing to help malnourished children and keep pensioners from freezing. Um, by October, he said, because they've got um, a rise in the price cap on gas prices or energy prices in October and then another one in January. He said, by October, 50%, over 50% of children will live in families that have to forego material necessities. Uh, right now, 20% of um, families are in what they call fuel poverty. They don't have enough um, to cover all their bills because of the price of fuel being so high. 54% of the country will be in fuel poverty by January when that next rate hike comes in. Um, so this other poll done by Servation and commissioned by an activist group called We Own It, they surveyed 4,400 people. And as you can see, 78% um, of people favoured nationalisation of the National Health Service, 69% uh, for water, 65% for buses, 67% for rail, 66% for energy, and 68% wanted renationalisation of the Royal Mail. Um, so it's very high. Um, Sadiq Khan, the London Mayor, uh, he also tweeted on the 20th of August, we're facing a winter where for millions it won't be about choosing between heating or eating, but tragically being able to afford neither. I mean, so this is the situation you've got. There's a campaign at the moment, so people are trying all sorts of things, um, where on a particular date coming up, uh, I think it's next month, people are being encouraged to not pay their energy bills or to cancel their direct deposit for payments and so forth mm -hmm. as a form of a strike. But again, as, a, as the question was posed, where is Australia on this? Because, you know, our capacity uh, to produce what we need in our own nation, including the manpower we require with skill shortages we're facing and so forth, is really wanting. Um, but we have everything we need in this country um, the public ownership of these same crucial items, our water and rail services, energy, you know, the energy crisis that we've ourselves faced, even though we're so far away and we have abundant energy, you know, needs to be addressed. But we need to have government brought back in to do the job that we elect them to do.
This is why the public postal bank is so important, Elisa, because it, it provides the means by which we can show people that it is possible to deal with these crises if you get the attention of the government in, in, and, and harness the, the, the will of the people. I mean, the worst thing you can get is into a situation where the population gets enraged because they don't trust their government. Now, we're already in that situation. They don't trust the government for very much at all. So the government, like what you're seeing here in England, for example, uh, here in Australia is in the same situation. The question is, Albanese's been in power for two months. What's he actually going to do? Mm. Is he going to operate or come back to the original principles of the the early Labor Party? Is he going to put the common good first? I mean, we don't have to, we don't have to do anything. The crisis is already here. Mm -hmm. The crisis is going to get worse, and no tinkering around the outside, no media covering up for the government is going to stop people from having to fork out more money for vegetables, groceries, for fuel, and so forth. So the question is, is this government going to turn back to the principles that have worked and take control of our natural resources, take control of, of our infrastructure, right? stop the privatisation of crucial elements of our infrastructure? I mean, the Albanese government's you know, talking about... Uh, well, sorry, the Victorian government here in Victoria, of all places, is talking about, you know, and is moving towards privatising partial Vic roads because it can see you can get a huge amount of money for mm. it. Well, if you had a state bank or a national bank, you don't need to do that. Mm. You can keep exactly. You can keep public assets in the in the hands of the public. This is a huge fight, but it does start with the postal bank, and it starts showing the people that they can actually make a difference. Yeah. And there's a lot of support for it. Yeah, and make sure, as we always say, to call your MP, write to your MP, because elbow's going to be wedged in that same position that Morrison was, and being demanded to do everything to protect. The bankers mm -hmm. and you know that establishment apparatus but he's got to have an even more um, you know um, uh, 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 he's got to have the population on the other side of him the other side of the wedge demanding equally as vocally but in a um, you know a way in which we map out these ideas and how they work so not just as you said the rage and the anger but our organising capabilities to say, look, this has worked in the past, this has worked in history, we can do it again. So we've got to have the people um, being the leverage to get this action, and that's that's the crucial that thing. That is the key. So, I mean, everyone watching this program, to, like you say, call our MP, draw their attention to this forum on the 7th of September in Parliament, and get them to come along, mm. right? because this is the key here. Look, there's a lot of support, but a lot of the people, a lot of the politicians... A lot of local councillors don't know that this mm. is on the table. They just don't know. But when they get a lot of call, and we've had MPs in the last week tell us, oh, I've been getting a lot of calls about this. Yes. That makes a big impact because, you know, we still are a democracy and people still vote and they still have that very much in the back of their mind. Yeah. So contact us to find out more. You can get a copy of the alert service if you haven't already. You can subscribe to get it regularly and to be engaged in the process because that's the show for this week. Thanks, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Lisa. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you again next week. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.